Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. So we're living in amazing times. It's really, really cool that we have all these new styles being born, or maybe styles, maybe they're getting born, but will they become full-fledged styles that endure? We don't know. It's all very fluid, and there's a lot of interest and creativity, really. I guess that's the most exciting thing, is all the creativity that's going into beer. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Joining me this week is Jeff Allworth, an award-winning beer writer based in Portland, Oregon. Jeff has authored five books on beer, The Widmere Way, The Secrets of Master Brewers, Cider Made Simple, Beer Tasting Toolkit, and The Beer Bible. The second edition of The Beer Bible was released in September 2021, and we took the opportunity to discuss beer a bit more broadly and through a social lens. We discuss evolutions within the brewing world, fluidity of beer styles, how the proliferation of information on traditional Scandinavian and Baltic beers impacted his thinking on farmhouse sales, and how his telling of beer history has shifted. Whether you're new to beer or have tried 10,000 beers, the Beer Bible is an inviting, enriching read. Jeff publishes almost daily on his blog, Beervana, which you'll find linked in the episode notes. And that's where our conversation kicks off. Let's dive and get heavy. Jeff Allworth. Welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. I want to dive into the beer Bible and some of your thoughts on craft beer and how you viewed the topic over time. You've written extensively about it, but I want to first begin by getting to know how you got interested in beer and how specifically you got into it from a writer's perspective. Were there any sort of formative experiences that you've had with beer that led you down that path? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a, you know, many, many threads came together. I started getting interested in beer in the 1980s because I'm old and uh, here in Portland, Oregon, uh, as the craft beer thing was was kind of in its pretty early years. And that was really interesting to a lot of people, you know, as this, this new thing was developing. So I got interested in that. Then I went to grad school uh, in the early 90s and the beer in Madison, Wisconsin wasn't the kind that I liked it. Actually, there were some good local breweries. They're mostly making lagers at that time. And I had already gotten turned on to hoppy Northwest ales. So my friend, Patrick Emerson, uh, who I host a podcast with today, uh, he and I started homebrewing to kind of create our own beer, uh, which didn't, I wouldn't call it enormously successful, but I got my toe in that world. And then after grad school, I was back in Portland uh, and the local alt-weekly Willamette Week had a a uh, position open for their uh, beer writer, the beer columnist, which alternated with the wine columnist, the mash and the crush. And uh, I managed through good fortune and and a whole lot of luck to be the person who got hired to do that. And that's when I started formally writing about beer. And that was in, I'm going to say like 1997, maybe 25 years ago. And Portland is known for being a sort of foundational point for craft beer in the U.S., how did you sort of find your way within that specific scene into discovering styles and discovering more about not just tasting, but about thinking about it? 
Yeah, I mean, I read as much as I could. And going back into the uh, early 90s, which was probably when I bought my first beer book, that was not a, a homebrew book. I, you know, there was not a whole lot to work with uh, in, in terms of good beer writing. Michael Jackson was sort of the, the main show. Uh, fortunately, he was really good. I know that there are some criticisms of folks now looking back at the work he did, and I feel like that's mostly unwarranted. I think given what he had to work with pre-internet uh, and pre-roadmap for what beer was at the time, I think he did an exceptional job. So, uh, you know, he introduced the concept of style to the world and to me, and he introduced me to the world of European beer. So he was a, a traveler and he liked to write about the the breweries that he visited and the experiences he had drinking beer. And that is an incredibly engaging way of writing. So it draws you in. So he was really the, the guy who taught me, you know, early on as much about beer as I knew. And I, at the time, I thought I knew quite a bit. Uh, I was getting more and more into homebrewing and, uh, you know, judging homebrew competitions and participating in that kind of world. And I felt like I knew a lot. And looking back, I realized I knew almost nothing about beer. <laughs> But I, you know, it was as good as I could do early on. And you've also started your blog, Yervana, which you publish uh, still almost daily. And it's one of the few blogs still out there. It's an impressive run for like a very specific sort of time in the Internet's evolution, how we were using it. How do you find that sort of medium today? And how has your sort of view of the blog and lengthier compositions that you're putting up in comparison to like short very brief reviews. How do you sort of view that medium evolving? Yeah, it really has evolved. My first blogs were all about politics in the early aughts. Um, that's how I got introduced to blogging. Uh, it was during the lead up to the Iraq war. So there was a lot of political action happening in, in the United States. And this, this new technology where you could just post stuff on the internet uh, cropped up. And I have always written <laughs> uh, embarrassing to admit, but it was late in the game, well after grad school, that I ever uh, entertained ideas about being uh, a writer professionally. And I, I wish I had thought of that earlier. I would have probably gotten here a lot faster. But I always wanted to write uh, going back to being a little kid. So when this technology came up that you could just write, it, it was extraordinary. And I started writing about politics at that time. I had actually a proto blog, a non-internet blog on my a hard drive that I would boot up. And uh, it's funny, it, it, I, looking, looking back on it, it really was exactly what I, when I discovered blogs, it's exactly what they were doing. It was just regular posts, keeping notes on what was happening and, and adding my commentary. And I kind of did it because, I, and this, this goes back into the 90s, back into the Clinton administration, uh, just because I knew that I would forget that stuff. So I was reading the news, absorbing the news, and I wanted a kind of a personal memoir of, of what my reaction to all that stuff was because, you know, in the, in the course of a week, so much happens politically that you don't, you know, if you don't, if you don't catch it, it's gone. You forget about it. Uh, so I converted that into a blog uh, when I learned that they existed and that was a lot of fun. So I was uh, an early political blogger and, and those were kind of heady days and I helped form a local blog in Portland that was called Blue Oregon and it became a really big deal. We, we had the ear of all the the left-wing uh, political folks in town, including, you know, up, all the way up to U.S. senators and governors, which was also very heady. In tw 2008, I got to go to the uh, uh, Obama inauguration as uh, a, a, a blogger. You know, <laughs> they paid for me to, to fly me out there to 
uh, right about the inauguration. And that was kind of the last moments of my my political blogging career. And I don't know if your readers are left, right, or something else. Um, it's not really relevant that I'm left wing. I don't think in terms of beer writing. Uh, it, you know, we all we all have political views and are political actors. And and the cool thing about beer, and this gets us to the beer blogging, is that you know when you're sitting in a pub, you you can find other ways to connect with humans. Um, that's a place where you don't have to be political. And that was really healing for me during that period of time when I was blogging because it was pretty raw uh, time, especially for writers, uh, because there was so much more direct access to the writers through comments uh, and interactions. Um, even now with social media, it's not linked directly to what you're writing necessarily. So, um, you know, it's it's not quite as wounding <laughs> uh, in, in many ways. So writing about it, so I went back to writing about beer and started the blog, my, my Beervana blog. Um, and, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it was, I was just off to the races. In a couple of years, I wasn't writing about politics anymore and still don't really comment on politics too much and, and got more and more into the beer writing. And, and that kind of took over. And by the time uh, I was working as a researcher at Portland State University doing work on soft money, and when my, the latest project that I was working on ended rather than scrambling to find a new project to get on. It was 2010. It was the the moment when you had, I think, 99 weeks of unemployment if you wanted it. And I thought that was a great opportunity for me to try to launch my writing career. You know, I'm going to have months and months before uh, <laughs> I have to get a proper job again. So I can use this like a, uh, a federal grant to launch my writing career. And, and then I Started doing that, and it ended up leading to getting the contract right, the Beer Bible. Uh, I think in 2011, I got that contract. And so the Beer Bible, which was originally released in 2015, the second edition came out in September 2021, obviously was a pretty lengthy, there was a pretty lengthy research time and all of the travel involved. And so that's interesting that the time of starting the blog overlapped a little bit with getting the contract for the Beer Bible. So when you sort of published this first beer Bible versus when you started it, a lot had changed in beer, much in the same way that a lot's changed between the first and second editions. Yeah, that's true. Uh, <laughs> if, I think it's actually picked up speed. I think it changed more between 2015 and 2021 than, than the earlier period. Um, but yes, things have, have really been changing in beer in a way they haven't in hundreds of years. You know, there, there have been periods of time when, uh, you know, a lot of stuff was happening in beer, you had a lot of different people doing different stuff before industrialization and, and a consolidation that happened and, you know, big breweries becoming really, really big. Uh, there were times when, when there was a whole bunch of cool stuff happening, but that's been so long ago, no one remembers it. Even to say that is, seems like maybe a dubious prospect because it's so fallen so far out of our, our lived experience. So we're living in amazing times. It's really, really cool that, you know, we have all, all these new styles being born or maybe styles, maybe they, they're, they're getting born, but will they become full-fledged styles that endure? We don't know. You know, it's all, <laughs> it's all very fluid and, and uh, uh, there's a lot of interest and excitement about, uh, and creativity, really. I guess that's the, the most exciting thing is all the creativity that's, that, that's going into beer. 
Absolutely. And I think that this is an interesting sort of jumping off point for looking at maybe some of the differences between the two. There's been some interesting sort of style like evolutions or things creating or knowledge being shared at such a rapid pace as a result of globalization going in full throttle that things that have been codified are now reimagined and things that have been reimagined somewhere are being reimagined elsewhere. How do you sort of view beer styles changing? Are they fluid or are they static? And the interpretations are what make them different? They have never been static. So this is a thing that Americans didn't get 40 years ago when we came to beer. Uh, you know, in 19, late 1970s, early 1980s, uh, people started making beer and they picked up their Michael Jackson and they looked and they said, oh, look, here's a Hellas or, you know, here's a, a, an English bitter. And this is a permanent style that has always been and always will be. It's like finding a, you know, a small woodland creature. It's like, what is this creature? I, if I, if I understand this creature, I will know this creature. And, you know, this, this thing exists. Um, and I think, I think now probably everyone gets the, that that's never really been the case. If you look at a style like Porter is always my favorite example. It started out as this barrel aged, uh, booming giant beer made with, uh, a weird, obsolete, smoky malt uh, that evolved into Guinness Stout, which is a 4.2% 4, 4. Uh, dry beer with no uh, barrel aging, no wild yeast, and no brown malt. And yet the lineage is just, it's just, you know, it, 200 years later, <laughs> you go from one to the other in this kind of connective pattern. So uh, every, everything's changing. Um, even in, in Germany, uh, if, you know, you talk to people, there's a big debate now where people say, oh, uh, Oktoberfest isn't an amber lager. Everybody always got that wrong. It's really pale. If you go to Oktoberfest, the, the Oktoberfest, you find the fest beers are very pale. So the idea that it was an amber lager is, is wrong. Well, actually, that's wrong, right? It, it did used to be an amber lager, uh, but it's evolved because pale lagers are more popular. So over the last 40 years, uh, fest beers have, have lost their color. And... The, the idea that German beers are any more durable, I think, is also, well, they're a little bit more durable, but <laughs> they're not, no, but nothing's permanent. The big, I guess the big change right now is that uh, with, with the birth of new styles, so the entire tradition of uh, hoppy American ales, and that, that, you know, started with Sierra Nevada's pale ale, which was not like England's pale ale, and goes to triple hazy IPAs, uh, milkshake IPAs, um, all of that is the birth of a way of thinking about beer, a way of making beer, uh, and a, a kind of hop, uh, none of which had ever existed before. And so that whole realm is its own kind of constellation in the galaxy. Is that right? Galaxy constellation? I don't know. What's a, whatever one's the bigger one. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's the littler one and the big one, but it's a big, it's a big constellation. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of stuff going on, and it, it all kind of comes out of this way of thinking about how to brew and, and how to make beer. So that kind of explosion is really new. We haven't seen the birth of a new way of thinking about and brewing beer, uh, you know, in, in hundreds of years. And so there's the, yeah, that, that, that is very different. And it means that you get really cool developments like hazy IPAs, which are totally stable new styles of beer their contours will always change just like every other style but they are they made it and then you also have things like brute ipa which is a thing that got born and is in this tradition and didn't survive right so now it mainly exists as a name and a, and a memory that we had of this moment when people were making brute ipas so it's a little bit hard to 
figure out when you're looking at all, you know, you go into a tap room and you see all these different kinds of beers that roughly fall into the IPA category, like which one of these is going to make it and which one isn't going to make it. And as a writer, uh, I had to piece through, you know, like, how do I talk about this? Because if I give a big section on brewed IPA and two years later, it doesn't exist, that that'll be a problem for me. So I, I have to try to figure all that stuff out. That's kind of fun. That is. And the pace of change is absolutely incredible in line with sort of how technology is changing and how it's being used has all radically changed since, you know, 2014 or 2015. In terms of like your experiences that you've had on travels, and you mentioned traveling to Lithuania to do some research on Scandinavian and Baltic farmhouse beers, which I want to touch on. What were some of like the formative experiences that you had on travels or in your research that informed some of the updates that you chose between like the first edition and the second? We kind of have to go back to the first edition because that was extraordinary. So I, I was reading my Michael Jackson 30 years ago, right? And, you know, I'm reading about the Burgundies of Belgium and his rhapsodic prose about lambics and all these different international beer styles. Uh, and it comes time for me to write my book. So I, I now am in the position of calling up these breweries. I didn't call them up. He called them up. I sent emails and it's modern, it's modern tech time. So I was able to, if they were a foreign brewery, send an email and put a translation from Google translation with an apology that it's only a Google translation and hope that people would find it and read it and respond. And they did. Uh, there were only two breweries that didn't get back to me or actually one brewery that didn't get back to me, one brewery that said, no, you can't come. Every other brewery said you can come. So I drew up my wish list and I batted like 98%. It was just amazing. So that was ex extremely cool. That formed the, the basis of the original beer Bible. And then the second time around, I was able to think about who did I miss, who deserves attention, and, uh, you know, is there any region that I didn't touch on or go to or, or talk about uh, where I should visit? And, uh, you know, in the, in the meantime, Lars Garshall has come up with all this amazing information about farmhouse brewing that is not the Belgian tradition. It's, it's this Scandinavian and Baltic tradition. And I knew that I had to see as much of that as I could. And because the beer Bible mainly refers to commercial styles of beer, uh, I limited myself to going to Lithuania where you can actually buy Lithuanian farmhouse beer. The, the cool stuff that Lars writes about with obscure farmers in, in the Voss region of, uh, Norway or, or wherever he's going. You, you, you know, you can't go to a, <laughs> you can't go to a town and, and get, get that on tap. Uh, so you have to actually go to that farmer and, and find them. And that's not actually so useful in a book like the beer Bible. So. You, but in Lithu Lithuania, you can. You can go to Vilnius and you can find farmer's beer on tap in, in Vilnius. And if, you ex if you're interested in that kind of beer, that is the one place you can go to taste farmhouse brewing in its original unadulterated form. Uh, and it's, it's really an extraordinary experience. And I really hope that through Lars's work and, and maybe through the Beer Bible, people will get excited and go to Vilnius and try some of these beers. And it will create some energy for these farm producers to make some more. It'll, it'll give it a little bit of shot in the arm because it's really one of the most special uh, things that's happening in beer. Um, and of course, I have nothing but uh, <laughs> gratitude to Lars for telling me about it and telling everybody who speaks English and didn't know this stuff exists existed about it as well.
It is pretty incredible that the publication by Lars Maris Garshall has elevated the sort of farmhouse and clandestine beers and the science behind the quite yeast specifically in a way that it was unknown. And it, it's, it's so interesting to me that in this highly globalized world, things are still sort of being discovered. They're almost like people lost in the Amazon. It's wild to me. Maybe you shouldn't be surprised at the same time just because there's so much that we don't know and we're limited to what's translated into English as well. Because some of this was new, did that add to the excitement of traveling to Lithuania? Absolutely. Uh, I love going to new towns, whether it's in Europe or in the United States, uh, just because no matter where you're drinking, it's going to be a little bit different. It, it, they're always a little bit different. If you're, if you're in uh, Manchester or London, it's going to be a different experience. So it, it's fun to travel, but it's, there's not so many of these ancient uh, brewing countries that I haven't been to. So it was especially cool to go to Lithuania. And Lithuania is really far. I mean, you're getting out toward Russia there. You're in a, a different time zone. Um, when I traveled, I stopped off at, at uh, Krakow in, in Poland on the way, uh, Austria to Krakow and then out to Vilnius. And um, it was kind of nice. I, I, I got a sense of how, <laughs> how remote it is. In some ways, uh, Lithuania is like the Oregon of uh, uh, Europe. It's way out there. <laughs> so it was it was fun. It was cool uh, to go to a remote place. And I had a, a nice uh, I talked to Lars beforehand and I had a he had, he had connected me to somebody there to be act as a, a kind of interpreter and take me around to places. So I wouldn't waste a lot of time, you know, not finding the beer I wanted to find. Um, and yeah, it was just it was amazing to get to see that weird beer. It's, it's definitely unusual. It's definitely not like any other beer scene in the world. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Jeff Allworth in a minute. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorch Tundra that I want to share. You can find tickets to Scorch Tundra present shows at scorchtundra.com slash tickets. Be sure you're in Chicago on Labor Day weekend 2022 to experience the next Scorch Tundra festival. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorch Tundra. If you love what we do, want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. Giving any amount will grant you access to our Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making this show and Scorched Tundra content the best it can be. Please also consider sharing this episode, rating us, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation with Jeff Allworth. How do you sort of see American produced? Because when that was a very, very hot topic in 2020 and maybe even before, there were a lot of producers buying lab-produced examples of this yeast. I know a producer here in Chicago, Omega Yeast, makes at least a couple of different types of quite yeast as they market it. And producers have been doing all kinds of different things with it. How do you sort of see those expressions and utilization of that in relation to being able to try the original? Yeah, I mean, Americans aren't really making the farmhouse beers, right? They're, they're, using, they're using yeast, but they're not using the techniques or the other ingredients to make or to reproduce these beers, which if you read Lars's uh, descriptions of them, it makes sense. They sound extremely bizarre. And based on the beers that I had in Lithuania, they're also very bizarre, very unlike Americans. Uh, beer and the palate would be uh, super unfamiliar to American palates. And we know that even uh, saisons from, from Belgium don't sell well. So 
you know, you get into these and they're a relatively normal beer. If you, if you've ever had a, a Belgian beer, it's not, not so weird, <laughs> but these beers really are very weird. And so, uh, I, you know, I don't know that they're going to make a translation in terms of how, you know, how, how those, I don't see an American brewery really making those beers except as a very, very, you know, unusual one-off then just kind of try it. And, you know, if you happen to be in that town and get a chance to try one of those uh, beers, you know, the 10 barrels that they make, you're never going to really get to try them unless you go to Europe. Um, and, and I think even at that case, uh, you know, th these beers are, are I, the, the yeast is an important element in the Scandinavian examples, but I think much, much, much more important is that they're processed beers. They are made in a very weird way. And, the yeast obviously adds a lot of character, but if you don't use the processes that these brewers are using, which are remarkably kind of shared throughout the whole region, from Scandinavia down to the Baltics and even out into uh, Western Russia, where where Lars has traveled, you know, uh, you find a lot of the interesting parallels: the use of juniper as a as a uh, filter, the you know not boiling them uh, because you're not using hops, and if you are using hops, using a hop tea. Like there's a lot of techniques that are kind of similar, um, which is really remarkable also, but no, no Americans are never going to do any of that stuff. It's interesting to think about this now, this new part of the world of farmhouse beers and sort of pre-industrial styles of beer and how they're all evolved for the surroundings in which they come from. The Kvike yeast, for example, being able to survive in the specific environments that it has. The yeasts from Belgium and from Wallonia that have ended up in grisettes and different types of farmhouse style beers. It's interesting to see how those producers of those beers have evolved and that sort of struggle and the similarities that they turn to are pretty interesting. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think one of the reasons the, the, the beers that Lars has written about have survived is because they don't have commercial pressures. They don't have to succeed in the commercial marketplace. So the, you know, farmers can make them however they like. If, uh, when I uh, was writing the second edition, I went to uh, Europe in 2019, fortunately, like got home three months before COVID hit. I was very, very, very fortunate. <laughs> uh, and I was shocked uh, to find, you know, Belgians being heavily influenced by America that you're finding, you know, it started with, with Duvel's triple hop, but it, it's, it's quite typical now to find uh, Belgians offering a, an American style, you know, Belgian beer. It's, it's basically a dry hopped Belgian beer, but uh, they, you know, they, they, they are also not immune the, the currents of commerce, they have to respond to what people are interested in as well. So even um, even what we'd consider the most traditional places exist in this commercial context. And that's one of the things that drives changes. You had interviewed Yvonne Debat from Dale Sen, and he was talking, thinking about this dry hopping in particular, that it had been a part of Belgian tradition. But I think the you're speaking to the manners and the utilization of dry hopping being a little bit more in American tradition. Certainly, there's also the third wave producers, too. Right. Yes, that, that's right. And uh, that was an interesting chat. Uh, I think many people are familiar with Yvonne uh, Brasserie de la Seine because he's such an eloquent informant about traditional Belgian beer. And he I, probably has the largest library of old technical manuals and stuff. So if you want to, if you have a, if you have a question about what was going on in the 19th century, like I, I wrote an article about uh, triples and I was really 
pretty sure I'd never seen anything about triples being brewed in the 19th century, but I, I was like, well, there's one guy who's going to be able to confirm this. So I, I pinged him and said, Yvonne, I, I'm right. Yeah, there's no triples in the 19th century. And he confirmed it, but he's the guy to go to for that stuff. So when he says we were standing there uh, looking at his uh, brewery and when he says, oh, yeah, you know, Belgians in the 19th century used to dry hop all the time, it, he's not a guy to take that you don't dismiss that information, you know. He, he's the guy who knows. Um, I do. I do think it was quite different. Um, dry hopping as a technique uh, probably is has been common uh, in the thousand years we've had hops um, in, in some form or another. Um, the way that they would dry hop, they would. It was. It was. It was very mild, and they would do whirlpool hopping much more commonly because the beer would go from. The, it would go into what, what was basically a hop back. So the, the beer, uh, after it left the kettle, would go into a vessel where the hops would become a straining, uh, become the straining bed as the hop wort poured through them. And uh, Belgian breweries would often add a, a few more hops at that stage for exactly the same reason Americans do. But I don't think that they were going for the same kind of expression. I think they were just trying to goose it a little bit, you know, give it a little bit more hop character. They were not doing what Americans are doing, which is to make it insanely fruity with all these, uh, you know, incredibly vivid flavors and aromas. There's an interesting sort of class of producers that were a part of this third wave. And I think of like Stroysa, I think of DeMullen, I think of maybe even De La Seine as a part of this that were in some ways not quite the contemporary producers, but they had some ideas tied to where they were from, but also were a little inspired by what was happening in the U.S. I mean, they were very innovative in their countries. Do you see them as still sort of a similar class or are there newer producers that have really sort of taken the flag as well? It's, it's so funny. They're definitely really, really important, but they're important in a different way. Uh, they, they were once the, the young startups, right? They were the, they were the, the, the craft brewers, the hip kids of their day back in the, you know, new century was when the century was just a tender age. Um, they were the young guys who were doing cool stuff and everybody was like, oh my God, look, Belgians can do, learn new tricks. Um, but in the, in, in the 20 years since they kind of came to prominence, uh, the, they've become the old guard, right? So now they're the protectors of tradition. So like Yvonne is a creative and I don't know if he'd like the word innovative, but he's a creative brewer. Uh, but he's so guided by, by history and tradition. And the guys at the Dole Brewery, uh, same, you know, some of the biggest, biggest defenders of tradition in, in the country. Duranka, probably less, but, you know, you, you find these people who have, be, who have matured into protectors of a particular kind of tradition. And now you have, um, you know, brand new breweries that are, look a lot more like American breweries. When I was in Brussels, I went to a place called the Hermitage, which, uh, you know, had American IPAs on tap and, and uh, felt like a craft brewery, although it was in Belgium, so it was in Brussels, so it was gorgeous, and it was tucked away in this little awesome place, and, you know, you, you go, it's kind of behind the uh, the outer wall, you go in, inside this building, and it's really cool. There's a courtyard between you and the outer, outer uh, road, so it's very cool, but you get in there, and it's like, oh, I get these, I know what these beers are like. <laughs> These are the same kind of beers we make at home, and they they they're they're Belgian, you know they're they're still Belgian makers, and so they don't taste like American beer exactly, but the influence is undeniable. 
it is interesting. I've spent a lot of time in Scandinavia and particularly in Sweden. I think because of how our soft culture in America is taken there and shared in media, there's a lot of influence that American craft beer has had on the scene there. It's kind of interesting to just go so far, but to see things that are familiar flavors in a certain way. Yeah, it's very, it's very weird. I mean, I'm old enough now that uh, I, I got to go to places where America was not an influence, but, you know, back in the day. And now there's really, uh, I, you know, if, if the country allows you to brew beer, you're going to find the influence of American craft brewing in that country. It won't, it won't look exactly the same way. Um, I wrote, I loved to write about Italy, uh, in the beer Bible. Um, it's one of the most interesting new, they started craft brewing in, in 1996. Uh, so quite recent, a lot more recent than the United States. And yet already has it a totally Italian flavor. So that's, that's cool, but undeniably totally influenced by the United States, you know, inspired by the, these, these people, uh, who were able to start small scale breweries, uh, on the cheap. Um, you see that everywhere. Uh, if you go to Mexico City or, uh, Bangalore, China, you know, anywhere you go, you're going to find, uh, the American influence and, this is this is that moment. There was in the eighteen I don't know, let's say eighteen seventies or something. Pilsners were washing across the the globe, and everybody was making. They were all inspired by this weird little country, you know, that had this weird little beer. Lagers had not been popular uh, up to that point. They were abetted a little bit by by Pasteur's work. Um, everybody's starting to understand my, microbiology, and so lagers looked like a good commercial prospect, but. It was, it was this explosion. And so all of a sudden you start to have pilsners being made all over the world, but they're not being ex made exactly like they are in Bohemia, right? They're already starting to change. And that's what's happening right now in the world. You have everybody's making American, they're opening American style craft breweries and they're making American style beer, including especially hoppy beers, but already they're not exactly like American style IPAs. And, and I think that will lead to something down the line that will be very interesting. That's an interesting touch point to make in terms of that huge innovative time in beer when industrialization and science overlapped to create all of these opportunities to create this very refined style of beer that was extremely accessible and together with colonialism or imperialism, however we want to label it, there was a spread of it. Making a correlation between those two wasn't something I hadn't thought of, but that's actually a really interesting point. Yeah, it's that classic thing. History doesn't repeat, but it rhymes. So <laughs> we're hearing the rhymes of Bohemia from uh, 1840s. Oh, that's well put. When you sort of look at the history part of the beer Bible, does your view or telling of history change as a result of the movements that have occurred between this publishing, related or unrelated? You had mentioned kind of Michael Jackson as well and how, you know, for very different reasons, obviously, you know, People look at his history a little bit different now than they may have 20 years ago. How do you sort of view history in terms of the change over time and the change of your views? Well, that's the, the, the great, I think, one of the great things that's happened in the last 20 odd years, 20 years, is uh, an appreciation for the history of beer. And going back to primary sources, and, and I'm not a historian, so I tend to sponge off those who are actually doing the work like, uh, Ron Pattinson and Martin Cornell and Andreas Krenmar, the Austria, uh, the uh, sorry, the uh, Vienna Lager writer, folks like that who are who are doing 
nice work uh, in, in in looking at this stuff have really changed the way we think about it. So it used to just be a bunch of, uh, you know, <laughs> old wives tales we passed among each other uh, that we didn't, we didn't really know that much about history. And now we're, we're starting to learn a lot more. But if you, even if you go to Ron Pattinson's site, because he's such a, uh, uh, he's a, he's a wonderful example of, uh, of how history changes because he is completely transparent about what he does. He dumps raw data on his blog and he interprets it to, a, to an extent. And he often interpret, he, he often updates his interpretations, right? He'll get a batch, he'll go to a brewery, he'll get a batch of stuff and he'll dump it in there. He'll get a, you know, he'll find a, a newspaper entry, uh, article from the 1860s or something and that will give him something. But then, Three or four years later, as he's continued to accrue more information about a, a, a particular beer style, he'll begin to change it. It's like, well, no, this is actually what was happening. And that's that's how scholarship works. When I was in graduate school, my favorite professor said, we are creating the theories that our students will disprove. And so you can't, you know, you can't be scared about getting it wrong because you will get it wrong, right? We, more information will come out. And... Uh, will be corrected. And this is one reason I'm a little bit reluctant to criticize Michael Jackson, because I don't think his history was particularly bad for a journalist. I think he got a lot of it right. He got a lot of it way, way, way righter than anybody else at the time. And of course, he got a lot of it wrong. And, and uh, you know, Ron Pattinson got some of it wrong. And, and Ron is just in the position to correct himself. So nobody comes after him. But, you know, if he'd, if he'd started that blog and then got disinterested and wandered away in 2010, a lot of that stuff, other people might have picked it up and said, oh, Ron got a lot of this stuff wrong. That's how this process works. Uh, we update we update what we know. In fact, uh, when I wrote the first edition of the Beer Bible, I argued that there's it, it was a common thing for people to say maybe the reason people uh, became domesticated, settled down, and started raising grain was for beer, not, not uh, uh, bread. And I always found that implausible, just facially. I thought that First of all, there doesn't seem to be a lot of evidence one way or another, and that just seems to be like classic beer uh, self-aggrandizement, this kind of stuff you see all the time. And and I, I made that observation in the first edition, and then since then, uh, some great archaeology has come out all over the world. Um, one of my favorites is a site in Turkey called Gobekli Tepe, uh, which dates back 10,000 years, evidence of beer 10,000 years ago, uh, which is, you know, 5,000 years at, at a minimum before the evidence of civilization. So, uh, and, and there's some really good arguments about why we would have made beer five millennia before we settled down. And it has to do with, you know, they, these people did not need food. They didn't need to settle down for food. They knew how to get food. What they didn't know how to get is something that was mildly intoxicating, right? That was, that was actually a thing they needed. So in the second edition, I, I completely reversed myself. I don't think there's any doubt now that that beer came before bread um, because it came so early. But that that evidence came out in, in between the two books, right? So I completely reversed myself. And I think as a writer, you have to you have to have really uh, you have to get used to being wrong <laughs> because you're going to be wrong a lot. And if you're if you're uh, if your ego can't handle the embarrassment of being wrong, it's not a good profession. And that's interesting to point out sort of the historiographical aspect of as we learn about things and certain viewpoints become common or perspectives become common, then we sort of shift how we view the past. In terms of beer culture, things have shifted so much as a result of the pandemic. I've always thought of beer culture as being sort of where the enthusiasts are. 
that's kind of changed a lot. And I'm not really sure how to interpret beer culture anymore because people are drinking more at home and people are communicating through untapped. And I'm just kind of curious as to if you think these sorts of changes impact the culture of beer. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think I won't guess how they'll impact them, but I think that they will impact them. And when you look at these, the, the, the development of styles, um, it, this was getting, having the opportunity to write the beer Bible forced me to, uh, look at beer historically and see how it developed, uh, which I never would have done on my own. And what you see time and time again is that beer is a cultural product. It's not unlike wine, which is dictated by what comes out of the ground. That's, you know, that's what you got with beer. You can do anything you want, basically. And humans have done since time immemorial. They beer always looks uh, like however the people making it want to make it. And so changes in society always change beer. Um, so, you know, war is a massive uh, interruption and it almost always changes beer if it's, if it's around for very long. Uh, in the United States, we had prohibition, changed beer quite a bit, right? <laughs> we had immigrants who came to the United States, changed beer quite a bit. Uh, all these, uh, all these things that happen, laws, it's amazing how much law will change beer. So you just pass a law that says, like in Britain, um, you can't use adjuncts. You have to use barley. Uh, uh, or then when they, when they reverse that and said, now you can use adjuncts, uh, the beer's changed immediately. Tax law, depending on how you, how they tax the beer, that will, brewers will try to get around it. So that will change the beer. All of these things affect beer and, it's inconceivable to me that a two-year interruption, global interruption in the way we interact with each other and consume everything, including beer, would not have one of those impacts. And maybe it won't last forever, and uh, maybe it won't be giant, uh, but but yeah, th this looks exactly like one of those things that <laughs> changes beer. So I'm thinking, yeah, probably going to change beer. I think at the very least, it's changed other aspects of how we communicate and how we engage in culture, too. That has to impact beer because it's a part of the fabric of what we're putting into our bodies. And culture is always tied to those things in some way. Yeah, totally. This has been a really great conversation. Let's wrap up here. And I want to just sort of give you an opportunity to have a parting thought with the audience. Is there anything you want to wrap up with? Um, no, you asked really fun questions that I don't get asked very often. And I really appreciate that. Uh, so I think I've gotten to say my, my bit that I want to thank you for asking great questions. Thank you, Jeff. It was a pleasure having you on Heavy Hops and encourage all the listeners to check out the Beer Bible and all of the other books. We'll have links in the episode notes. So Jeff, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. That was actually a whole lot of fun. Thanks. <laughs>